Good morning again. Charles Blunden. Charles Blunden was something of a 19th century daredevil, uh, known in particular for his feats regarding tightrope walking, uh, a quarter mile going the breadth of Niagara Falls, over the falls, on a tightrope. This is what the man was known for uh, for some number uh, of years. Uh, in particular, uh, one day, 1859, uh, he went back and forth across uh, the falls on this tightrope from Canada to the United States with a wheelbarrow in front of him. Uh, not just, just you know one foot in one of the other, but one foot in front of the other, pushing a wheelbarrow uh, as he would go. Back and forth, back and forth uh, he would go. And, and by the way, not just doing that and not just with a wheelbarrow, but he actually did it blindfolded uh, as well. So after having done this and after having proven that he certainly had the skill set to be able to do such a thing, he then began to seek out what you might call is some audience participation. There were crowds on both sides, both on the Canadian side and the, the United States side, watching this whole thing unfold. And so he then be, he asked the question. He said, who believes that I can carry a person in this wheelbarrow as I go across? And everybody's like, yeah. Who would like to be the one to get in the wheelbarrow? A very chilly response to that follow-up question. Um, didn't get any volunteers that day, strangely enough, despite all of the enthusiasm and the hope and faith and trust that they, you know, ostensibly had in the man and his skill set. There were, I guess you could put it this way, limits to, it, to their trust. It only went but, it went pretty far, but it only went but so far, Right? Hence, they were unwilling, no one was willing to get in the wheelbarrow themselves that day because there were limits in their, their trust. We're in the midst of a study through the book of Judges. Um, we're, we were in chapter 4 last week. The plan is in a couple weeks to press into chapter 5. Uh, last week in chapter 4, because of where we are, we're looking at Deborah and this, this woman, this amazing woman that the Lord raised up for his purposes in that time, in that place, and speaking and working through her in the ways that he did. And, and when you really start paying attention and thinking about what was happening then, it should raise some questions in your mind as to what's going on here and what are the repercussions of that for us for today. I would say going past just even raising questions, I think perhaps it might even push us to the limits of our trust. The limits of our trust in God and his goodness and the truthfulness of his word and our being willing to let him speak into all things, all of our concerns, all issues. Texts like this, passages like this have a way of exposing the limits of our trust. How far will it go in our trust in his goodness and the truthfulness of his word? Well, if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Judges 4. We're going to go back and, and read some of that again. Not, not all that we read last time. Uh, actually, just a, a bit, just portions of it. Judges chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 10, and then skipping just a little bit and reading on through verse 16. Uh, so if you're trying to find that, this is Old Testament. This is after the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
after Joshua, you hit Judges. Before Ruth, Judges, we're in chapter 4. So Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagaim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Libadoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you, by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said, Barak said to him, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. Now, skipping just one verse over to verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagaim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down, Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Can we pray? Lord, you said through the prophet Joel, it shall come pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. You have a lot in mind for us, your people. And we pray that uh, you would indeed stretch our understanding, enlarge our understanding of what you mean for us, your people, for what you have in mind, for you indeed are good. Your ways may not be like ours. Your, our expectations, our assumptions may need to be shifted a bit. But your ways are good and your word is good. We have read of this. We have sung of this. Oh, how we need to be reminded of this. And we pray for your mercy upon this study, this time over these next few minutes. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, if I may, let me uh, 
give a little background as to where we are here in, in the book of Judges. So, and what's going on here with, with the people of Israel and why? Why? I said there's questions being raised here. Why are there questions being raised? What are the questions and things along those lines? So Israel, Israel, this is the time of Israel where Israel is settling into the land of Canaan, but they are anything but settled. It is an unsettled time, even as they are settling as a people into this land. And the reason that it, things are so unsettled is because, well, the people are troubled. And the reason they are troubled is because, yet again, in the cycle of Judges, we've been talking about this over the last several weeks, in the cycle of Judges, they have turned their backs from the Lord. Uh, therein, he has responded by allowing for this time of oppression by the, uh, the nations of the peoples that are there in that, that land to rise up and it, therein it becomes a time of suffering, of enslavement, of captivity, of just all kinds of horrific things going on in, in, this, in this time of, of oppression. The people cry out, and the Lord in his grace and his mercy again responds by sending a leader, a deliverer, a savior, a judge. And as Will has said rightly no few times in the course of this series, when you think of judge, don't think of, you know, somebody like, you know, an, an English banister, you know, with a, a white wig and black robes and in the dock and all that. No, 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 no. We're talking about a warrior judge in the sense of someone bringing about justice, someone who's been sent by God, appointed by God, raised up by God to make things right, to bring justice, in that sense, a judge, okay? That's really what we see uh, going on here in the book of of Judges. Now, in this case, in Judges 4 and 5, what we read is of this woman that the Lord at this point in Israel's history, he raises up as a judge. Now, what do we know of Deborah? We're taking a big step back, looking at chapter 4, looking at chapter... I know we haven't talked to chapter 5. We will, Lord willing, in the next couple weeks. But what you see in chapters 4 and 5 regarding Deborah, some pretty astonishing things, some, some beautiful things about this woman. So first off, I'm going to go in... Um, ascending order, I guess, of, of things that you, you might know. So the first thing is, maybe you haven't thought about, is she is a composer. She is a poet. She is a lyricist. How do you know that? Chapter 5, the song of Barak and Deborah. Deborah seems to be really the one who's, who wrote this. And it's, it's powerful imagery that she writes. It's, it's, it's astonishing, beautiful um, rhythms to this song, even in the English that, that comes out, that just impresses upon the mind, upon the heart, the imagination as you are reading this, kind of a retelling, a poetic retelling in chapter 5, which you read of in the history of chapter 4. So she is a composer. She is, of course, as the text tells us, she's a judge. Now, in this case, Deborah actually functions in some capacities more like what we think of today when we hear the word judge, in that she's holding court people from all over the land, the Israelites, are coming to her, asking her to render judgment, to make a call on difficult issues. The woman was respected for her wisdom all over. She was known, she was respected, and the people came from all over that, they, that she would render, using her wisdom, her discretion, her understanding of God and His ways, a decision. She's a judge uh, in, in that sense. But she's also, of course, a, a prophetess, meaning she is a female prophet, meaning that she spoke words of instruction and warning and encouragement to the people. She spoke with 
authority, and not just like a tone of authority, but with God's authority because she is a prophetess. She is speaking, she is the very mouthpiece of God, just as every, every bit as much as Isaiah, as Jeremiah, as Moses, is Deborah as a prophetess and the authority with which she spoke. So if we were all of us to get into a time machine right now, to go back to that period, and you're listening to her, you better listen. You better listen because she is speaking the very words of God as a prophetess. Okay? So that's Deborah, this composer, this judge, this prophetess. Now, questions that then you may, you, you see, you may, so maybe some questions began to get stirred up in you already, and I have a feeling I know what some of them are. Some things along the way, well, what do we do with this? What is the significance of this for us today? Deborah and the way she's functioning. And by the way, I don't mean in a societal way. I don't mean that at all. And we can't be asking the question in that way because Israel at the time was a theocracy. The state and the church, the church and the state intertwined. So this is not a place to be asking at a societal level, what does Deborah and her example have to teach us in the significance of where to go with the state? That's not the right questions. Rather, the question to be asking is, um, what does it mean for us, for God's people, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, life in the local church? What is that? What is, what is this narrative? What does it mean for us today in that sense? Now, but just a caveat I need to throw out here. This is a narrative, okay? This is history. This is different than didactic teaching, say like, you know, one of Paul's letters or a proverb or something that's just straightforward. You know, this is clearly, you know, the principle and the application. In narrative, you need to be careful about assuming that the descriptive is the same as the prescriptive or what uh, happened is what should have happened. You need, we need to be careful about not getting those two things confused. At the same time, there are principles here to be learned. God is God. He has not changed. God is God. His way, he has not changed. His ways have not changed. His love of his people haven't changed. So there's still yet some things for us to consider, but we have to be careful with our questions and the assumptions that we bring to the table. But back to the question. What do we learn here in terms of Deborah and what we see going on here in Judges 4 and 5, in terms, I'll be very specific. This is just cut to it. When it comes to women in the church, that's the question, isn't it? That what you're beginning to ask at this point. And we're going to cut, we just need to cut into it. What are we learning here about men and women in the life of the local church and what we see here with Deborah, this composer? judge, prophetess that the Lord raised up. How do we see women's roles and, and service encouraged? How do we see it restricted? What does God have in mind for us as his people as we see fleshed out in the life of Deborah? And the stakes are high here. This is not just some one-off academic theoretical conversation. We need to be considering messaging, messaging of how we speak and act our practice for what the large, what the outside world, I'm, just, I'm not saying we determine it that way. I'm just saying being aware, being aware that there's an outside world that's listening, 
being aware that we have our children in our midst that we're raising within our con- in this context, in this body, and they need to know, boys and girls, what these things are. And then, of course, if I can be a little snarky, roughly 50% of us in this room are women. Oh, and the other 50% are men, roughly, and both genders need to understand these things and to walk in the Lord's ways. Let me tell you what my fundamental assumption is in all of this. My baseline fundamental assumption in all of this. God is good. God is good. His ways are good. His works are good. His word is good. He is good. And with that in mind, we must trust him. We must trust him in everything, including every issue. We must trust him in every aspect of our lives and including every issue that we find at the table. So let me, if I may, two parts, addressing this in two parts. First, the flawed responses to the question, what are the implications of this example of Deborah? What are the implications of that So for us today? First part being the flawed responses, let's call them what they are, and the second thing being some better, a better answer, a better path a better way forward. So flawed responses, uh, attempts to get at that question that fall short. And I'm just going to speak in terms of, of spectrums, poles, if you will. I know there's a lot of bumps and points along the spectrum, but just here are the you know, two points. First being the, the progressive liberal response to the question of Deborah and what's going on here. And the answer goes something like this. Here's what Deborah proves depending on the lens. You know, this would be the progressive liberal lens. What Deborah proves is that anything a man can do, a woman can do. That's, that's, that's the, the assumption and that's the conclusion that the progressive liberal lens would come away from the text. The idea being that any differences that we would speak of in terms of gender are social constructs, are man-made, are myths, are fairy tales. And that's just... So we're just going to reject that out, out, out of hand. As a rebuttal to that, when you look at the text and really take the text at face value and let the narrator speak, what you see is that even, even when we see, if we compare Deborah with her counterpart judges, we see some significant differences. And it comes out in her leadership. And the idea being that these differences are so real that they express themselves in how she leads. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Deborah doesn't actually charge into a battle with a sword. She recruits Barak to do that, to lead in the charge. So she doesn't fight like the other judges do, nor is she a lone ranger like all the other judges are, but rather she is a team builder. I also, one other thing, and that is that, that unlike all the other judges in, the, in this book, she excels not just in wartime, but in peacetime. She brings a whole different set of skills to the table than her brother judges do. And it seems as there's something coming out here that, that the narrator of judges is calling our attention to, these creational designs, these differences and distinctions that are coming out here just with 
that. So th- that would be, so let's then set aside the progressive uh, liberal answer. Now let's deal with, well, what then is the conservative traditional answer? And how does that fall short? Because it does. It does. The conservative uh, traditional answer just doesn't say, well, everything a man can do, a woman can do, but rather it says just the opposite. It says that women shouldn't be leading in any way at all. And Deborah, because of the lens, proves that. And the idea being that the reason that you see Deborah doing what she's doing, this is that perspective, is that she's just an anomaly. She's a one-off. She's an exception because of the cowardly abdication of, of leadership by the men in Israel at the time. So she just has to step up to the plate because nobody else is. And sadly, that dynamic, you kind of feel that a lot. But, and, that, and that's what the argument is. That's what the argument is, is, is here. Well, the rebuttal to that is, well, first, first off, can we just say that the text doesn't say that? Can we just say that the text does not say that the reason Deborah stepped up is because nobody else did? That's not what the text says. And in fact, when you look at other examples in the Old Testament of other prophetesses, well, that clearly doesn't hold because you have Miriam in Moses' day and Huldah in Jeremiah's day, and you certainly can't say there's no other prophets then because you've got Moses in Miriam's day and Huldah in Jeremiah's day, and so you can't say there was no one, no other prophets on the scene because there they are, and yet the Lord is raising these women up as prophetesses. The Lord, in his wisdom and in his ways, is specifically calling, raising up Deborah for such a time as this. Intentionally. Intentionally. So neither the progressive nor the conservative answer are going to square up with this. Neither one. Uh, Both are equally wrong. It's like being asked to pick between two poisons. Which would you prefer? Which lethal poison would you like to drink? Which way of being killed would you prefer? Uh, firing squad or hanging? Oh, Odysseus, out there wandering about in the Mediterranean, which would you prefer, Scylla or Charybdis? Which one's better? Neither are better. They're both fatally flawed in terms of their approach, which means then that when we, and I can be very careful, but I have, we have to say this, when we recognize that the traditional conservative side sometimes lends itself sadly, tragically, real, towards abuse, the answer then is not to say, well, then we need to be looser. Conversely, when you're over on this side saying, yeah, but look at all the societal pressure and influence and how it's lapping up onto the shores of the church and and the infection that's spreading and how we're becoming more like the world and less like... The answer there is not then to become more strict. Again, they're both wrong. That's Scylla and Charybdis. It's a false choice. The people of God need to be looking to the Word of God, leaning to the Spirit of God, and asking for help and discernment and wisdom and walking these things out together. That's the answer, to trust Him. He's good. He is so good. His ways are good. His word is good. We need to trust him in everything and including all the issues. Okay, so let's assume we've cleared the decks of the flawed responses. What then might be a better way forward, some, a better answer? Well, 
I'm going to attempt the impossible, which means that's impossible. But what really we need here is a survey, a survey of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that then would begin to inform and help us to understand how particulars begin to fit in, a, in that. But let me just say, from the very start, Genesis 1 and 2, this is what we see. Men and women have been created in God's image. Not one more so than the other. Completely, equally so, men and women have been made in God's image. And therefore, men and women both bear, carry the same amount of worth and value and dignity. Every one of us. No matter what anybody else told you, whatever messages you have received, men and women made in God's image uh, equal in value and worth. That said, that doesn't make us identical. You get the distinction. We are equal, but not identical. Okay? You see that in Genesis 1 and 2, from the very beginning, pre-fall, and then that rolls itself out all the way to, through Revelation. Okay? Now, Old Testament pattern, again, I'm flying, we're going like, I don't know, 80,000 feet and really fast. And just know there are whole books and volumes and lecture series, and I can commend a few to you, but I just can't cover all that now. In terms of the Old Testament pattern, what do we see? We see women advising men, counseling men, rebuking men, teaching men, prophesying before men but most often in a limited private capacity. Interesting. Interesting. And we never see a woman in the Old Testament doing what we would equate today as preaching. You don't actually really see that in the Old Testament. Leadership. We see women leading, leading right alongside men. You see that even in Judges 4, right? We see women leading right a song alongside men, and yet at the same time, you don't see a woman raised to, you might say, the notoriety, for lack of a better word, of an Abraham or a David or a Moses or something like that. In fact, what you do see is, like, like a case, say, back to Miriam, thinking of her, Moses' sister. She aspired at one point, you may remember, aspired towards a, a, a greater place, a more authority, more standing. And God really rebuked her for that. Conversely, over here, even in Judges 4, you see Barak um, wanting to step away from that, even when he was called into that. And God says, uses Deborah to rebuke him to say, get back in there, man, and do what you're supposed to do. Well, something of the Old Testament pattern. Now, I know it's a quick survey, and I apologize, but we just need to press further in the timeline. Jesus' ministry, what do we see? What do we see in the Gospels? Well, we see women are absolutely vital to Jesus' earthly ministry. Absolutely. Essential, in fact. We see women accompanying him, supporting, not just relationally, but financially, supporting him in his work, accompanying, standing with him, not abandoning him like some others, not abandoning him at the time of his, his, his crucifixion and women as the first witnesses of the resurrection and bearing the news, carrying it forth to his disciples, the first evangelists really, when you, make, you think about it that way, 
were the first heralds of the resurrection were women. And yet, yet at the same time, Jesus chooses 12 male apostles. Now, sometimes the argument is given at this point to say, well, Jesus was constrained by the traditions of his day. And I just have to say, with all kindness but firmness, that's ridiculous. Jesus was never beholden to the traditions of the day. Show me an example in the Gospels where Jesus kowtowed to man-made traditions of the time. That was one of the things that constantly got him in trouble with the Jewish authorities. Look at how, many, how he loved to spend time investing himself in so many different types of people, including lots of women and lots of different types of women, and how they were drawn to him because of this. And yet at the same time, he chooses 12 male apostles. Something to consider there as well. Now, skipping on, just pushing a little further in the timeline, the apostolic era, uh, thinking in terms of, of, of the, the New Testament um, epistles, the letters from Paul and Peter and, and, and others. Um, what do we see there? Again, we see this idea of we've been made equally so in the image of God with every bit as much as dignity and worth, men and women, as, as, as the other, and yet at the same time, not identical. And with that, what we see, Peter, Paul, writing of this, calling for women to learn, learn the faith, grow in the faith, study the faith, just like men. Grow, sink the roots down deep, be, be encouraged to do that. Share what you know. All of that is very clearly stated there. And, and anything that men in a congregation could do to encourage and embolden the women in that ought to be done to support that. And yet at the same time, what we see is, in the New Testament era, it becomes clear that women should not be the primary principal instructors within the context of a local church because that role is reserved for the elders. And it's very clear that only men can serve as elders elders, which is why, just a quick aside, why we read some of the maddening phrases otherwise that we read, in, especially Paul, places like 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says uh, women should keep silent in the church. Now, that is not when you read everything Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 14, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians, it becomes very clear that what Paul is speaking of there is not mute wordlessness. What he's referring to is in the context of weighing and examining uh, with a, a sense of critical authority of the teaching of people in the church and that role is reserved and specifically for that cultural context for elders within the church who, again, are to be men. That's what that word, those words mean in 1 Corinthians 14. Or you could say in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Well, please understand that that phrasing uh, to teach or have authority is, is, a, is, is one thing. It sounds like two things. In the Greek, it's one thing, to teach and to have authority over a man. He's referring to the office of elder, again there, in 1 Timothy 2. Um, 
vital that we understand these things. And vital that we understand this. I can come back to this. Differing roles is never to be equated with higher or lesser value. Ever. Ever. Whichever gender you're the ears of which through your hearing that this, this message. Differing roles are never to be equated with differing value. We are, we know this from the scriptures, we are valuable in God's sight and should be in one another, not in accord to what we do, but who we are as image bearers of God and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. Let me put it this way. Uh, this came up actually in a conversation between Sarah and I just last night. And she pointed this out to me that men and women in the local church are to understand ourselves as being like a, two puzzle pieces. We come from the same box, we form a picture, but only together. One piece without the other is an incomplete picture. We need one another, and without the, con the mutual contributions one of another, we're really losing something in the local church. Which takes me to a quote from, from really smart people, smarter than me. Uh, there's a, a long series of quotes. You can see this in your quotes and notes uh, from a study committee from a 2017 paper uh, that was done by a committee of good folks, men and women, within our denomination. And at the very bottom of that list of quotes, there's this one. And I want, I want to read this to you. This is something that was noted uh, there. Uh, the committee affirms wholeheartedly that the Bible requires women's gifts to be fully employed within biblical parameters. Anything to the contrary has only wounded the body of Christ, robbed it of many of God's gifts, and caused outsiders to question the church's devotion to the Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. Moving forward, the committee desires to see churches utilize women's gifts and abilities so they may, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one says, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me just, uh, if I may, have a couple of observations at this point. Now, I don't have the time to get in particulars. There's all kinds of questions. I know you can ask me, and if you want to talk about them later, it's fine, but just don't have the time for now. Rather, some big picture meta observations, and that is... We all need to hear this, whether um, men or women, and I know we hear it differently. I know we hear it differently when we're talking about these issues, but we all need to be aware that when it comes to leadership, when it comes to the teaching of the Bible on the topic of leadership, leadership is never about power and privilege. It is about service and sacrifice that must be borne in mind. When we're talking about this. Men in their own way need to hear this, and women in their own way need, need to hear that. We all do. Another thing is, as we are coming to conversations, and maybe I could have let off with this, I don't know. As we come to conversations and discussions and wrestling with such issues, we need to bear in mind that our experiences, we carry our experience to the study of the text. We may try and be as objective as we possibly can. It's impossible. You bring your experience to the text. If you've had a good experience in a church where these things were lived out in a, in a beautiful, healthy way, you will hear this in one way. Conversely, if you've been hurt 
if there was spiritual abuse, authoritarianism, you know, wielded like a club, misapplied, then you're going to hear this in a completely different way. And we just need to know that of ourselves and one another, lest we jump to conclusions, lest we don't give one another space and, and air to breathe in having conversations and make hasty conclusions one about another. And remembering this also, I alluded to it already, that men hear this conversation and engage in this conversation differently than women, and women the same differently than men. It just is because, of course, it has implications differently for one for the other. So, of course, we're going to feel it, hear it, respond to it in different visceral ways. We need to give one another air to breathe in space to have these conversations because they're hard. They're hard. But back to the assumption. God is good. His way and his word is good. And so then we need to trust him and trust him in everything, including all these issues. Now, how do I wrap this up? I know nowhere else better to go than the words of Aslan. It seems safe, though he's not. The silver chair... Uh, and uh, in the silver chair, this is one of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, in case you're not aware of it. Aslan has given, the mighty lion has given this charge to uh, Jill and Eustace and Muddle, uh, Muddle, Puddleglum, the marsh whittle. And the charge that Aslan has given to these three is to seek out, to find and free the captive Prince Rillian. And uh, he, Aslan gives them four signs that they are to pay heed to on this journey. And they're critical that they, that they know them, that they abide by them along the way. Now, along the way, they forget, they lose sight of, of the first three. But the fourth one still stands. It hasn't gotten past them yet. And, and that one was that they would recognize the prince when he calls for something in Aslan's name. That's, that's the fourth sign. When they hear that, they'll, they'll know. They'll know that they're, they're close to it. Well, as the story unfolds towards, towards, I don't know, roughly midway, two-thirds of the way, they find themselves trapped in this room with this knight who's tied to a chair. And uh, he, he, um, it's said that he has these ravings that are so wild and uncontrollable, that's why he has to be tied to this chair. Well, the, the, our heroes, the three, uh, Eustace and, and, and Jill and Pelagon witness one of these ravings, at which time uh, he says he's not insane. It's, it's not during, it, it's, it's at the nighttime that he's, the spell is, is lifted. He's under the spell in the daytime. It's, it's actually that it's, 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 he's himself at night. And he pleads. These are the words. If you have any pity, cut my cords and set me free. By the bright sky above, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. Okay, there it is. That's the fourth sign, right? Did you hear it? Did they? That's the question. Did they hear it? Is that it? He asked in Aslan's name. Is that the fourth sign? If only we knew, Jill cried. I, I think we know, Puddleglum replied. Do you mean everything will come right if we do untie him, asked Eustace. I, I don't know about that, said Pogolom. Aslan didn't say what would happen. He only told us what to do. That fellow may kill us once he's up, but we must still follow the sign. So they set the knight free and found that he was Prince Rillian, the object of their quest. Now, why was it so hard? You might be like, what's so hard about following the signs? I mean, the reader's kind of like, 
come on. There's a, why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to follow the signs? Aslan told them it would be. Oh, dear reader, if you remember, going back a few chapters earlier, this is what Aslan said. Here on the mountain, I've spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down to the Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And as the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there, that is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. The idea is, is this. The air is less thick in some places. The air is less thick in some places. And because of that, you can have greater clarity and greater certainty. So, like, if you think in terms of this being Narnia, in some places the air seems clear. It seems obvious, you know, the signs, if you will. When we hear calls to, in our culture today, here's calls to justice and mercy, everybody rises up and says, yay and amen, until they realize what it actually means. When, yet, we hear calls for... Um, sexual purity or radical generosity or empathy towards a neighbor and sympathy therein, well, then the air gets a little thicker. We get a little more confused. We're a little slower to, to, to act in, in those places. And when it comes to making arguments and making statements about men and women as being different and gender distinctions, the air seems thick, doesn't it? Remember the signs. God is good. His ways are good. His word is good. We need to trust him in everything, including the hard issues. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you that you have not left us to bumble our way in the dark but rather you have given us the light of your word would you help us to abide in you and abide by it to recognize all that we bring to the conversation and to the considerations and to walk humbly together before you on this path Jesus would you bless this body Make us increasingly what we need to be for the sake of your name amidst us and outside to the watching world, we pray in your name. Amen.